I want you to imagine for a minute uh, the situation that the author of Proverbs gives us here, which is that you receive uh, at the same time two invitations to two different parties that are on the same night. And you can't go to both. You can't be two places at once. So you have to choose which feast, which party are you going to attend. One of the parties uh, comes to you and you can hear it. It comes through the mail slot. You run to pick up the mail and you pick up this invitation and your name is written in calligraphy on the front. Before you even open it, you can feel that this is heavy, that somebody spent some money on this paper. And you open it up and the, the envelope's lined with gold paper and the, the invitation is, uh, is engraved. You can feel it. This is, a, this is a serious invitation. Somebody has gone through a lot of expense to let you know that you're invited to this party. The other invitation comes through at a, as a text. Somebody says, hey, you up? And you look at it. What are you doing tonight? You go, okay, well, these are two different invitations. How are you going to make the decision about which one of these parties you go to? Maybe you figure out uh, what's going to be served at the party. And so you call the one host of the first invitation, and they say, oh, we've got the best chef in town is going to cater this party for us. We can't believe we got him. And I got, I got cases of 1984 Chate uh, Chateau Lafitte. And you may not know what that is, but it sounds French and fancy, and it sounds old. So you say, all right, that sounds good. You ask the other person, what are you serving? And they say, oh, well, you won't believe my luck. Uh, outside the store, somebody left a few loaves of Wonder Bread they weren't going to eat. And I've got some water. And everything else, other than that, it's BYOB. Anything else you want's on you. But I got bread and water. One of the people is, is the, the, the first party, it's hosted in a house. It's one of the most beautiful houses in town. You've always wanted to go into it. The other one's in a rundown shack that everybody in the neighborhood knows if you're going into that house, that you're up to no good. The guest list for the first party is made up of the most respected people in town, people that you would love to spend a night over good food and good wine talking with and getting to know. The guest list at the other party, well, everybody, everybody zips around back and parks behind the house so they're not seen walking in, so they don't get seen with who else is there. It's a shady group of people. How are you going to decide which party to go to, which feast to sit down at? Well, that's the question that the author of Proverbs puts front and center for us. And says essentially that this is the driving question of your life. Is which party are you going to attend? Which feast are you going to go to? At what table are you going to sit down and eat and seek satisfaction? There's an old saying that you are what you eat. Right? That, that what you put in your body uh, affects you. It shapes you. It, it makes a difference whether you're going to be slim and fit or whether you're going to be overweight. The tables that you sit at make a difference as far as who's in your life and what, what your habits are, that you are what you eat, right? The choices that we make arise out of who we are and what we value, but then in turn, they shape us. I realized this about 10 years ago. Uh, I got married, and a lot of guys gain weight when they get married. I've noticed that. Uh, I actually lost weight when I got married, and it's not because Haley's not a good cook. She's actually a really, really good cook. It's that as a single guy uh, in grad school, working, you know, going to school, working hard, I ate way too many of my meals uh, just by zipping through McDonald's on my way from class to work, eating in the car, throwing the wrappers behind me in the back seat, 
going to my next thing. Oh man, now what am I going to do? All right, for breakfast, I'm running late to class. I guess I'll go back to McDonald's. They start to know me on a first name basis. You know, is it going to be the usual today, sir? Um, you know, so you, I, I just had terrible habits about what I put in my body. And then getting married, we start having, you know, Haley thinks about things like health and fat and carbs and all that stuff. And so starting to have good meals, sitting around a good table, a place where a meal was a place of, of connection, a place where it was nourishing, I started losing weight. And it was great because you are what you eat. What you put into your body ultimately shapes you. And the author of Proverbs would say that's true for us, not only physically, but spiritually as well. That we are governed in some ways by our desires, by our appetites, by our hunger. And where we go to satisfy that hunger ultimately has a great deal to do with shaping the trajectory of our lives about who we become. And so if you remember the old cartoons, I remember watching uh, cartoons and they'd show the character would have an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder. You remember those? Uh, And the angel would be trying to talk him into doing right. Uh, The demon would be trying to talk him into doing wrong. This is kind of what's going on here, although the, the author has something deeper. It's not just that they're competing, uh, trying to convince you to do right or wrong. That before each of us are invitations to two different feasts that determine the trajectory of our lives. And so let's look uh, at these two feasts. Wisdom is the host of the first feast. Her table is talked about in verses one through six. And then folly is the host uh, for the second feast. Her feast is described in verses 13 through 18. So wisdom and folly invite us. Their two houses are described. Wisdom's house is a large and beautiful one. She's hewn her seven pillars. Uh, We're told that in the ancient world, a seven-pillar house, the typical house would just have four pillars. It would be a simple square. So for a house to have seven pillars, it's a large house, probably with a courtyard in the center. And wisdom is set her place there. She has the finest food, meat and wine. She slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. Whereas if we, as we said, folly offers only stolen water, verse 17. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. What she's saying is essentially, look, the food that I'm offering isn't all that good, but there is some pleasure in knowing that you're eating what you shouldn't be eating. There's something about the, the, the fact that you're disobeying to get it, that you've stolen the bread and the wine, that makes even, even poor food seem at least a little bit exhilarating. But she's not offering anything real or substantive. Two feasts are offered. And the author is, uh, is clear to, to show us that these two feasts aren't any ordinary feasts. That he's, he's not talking just about what you eat, but that it's a metaphor for something deeper. And the metaphor that it stands in for is that he's using food as a way of talking about worship. He's using these feasts as a way of talking about worship. The way that we know that is that this symbol of of she's hewn her seven pillars. Commentators tell us that they think that's an allusion to a temple, that her home is is described in language like a temple. So her feast, the Feast of Wisdom, is an invitation to worship in the temple. And then folly when it says that she takes her seat on the highest places of the town. In the pagan worship of the ancient world, uh, temples were built on the highest places in the village. That the high places were thought to be places where heaven and earth were close to one another. So what the author's doing is something that the biblical authors often did, which was to use eating and drinking as a symbol for worship. 
Right? How does that symbol work? Well, what we look to to meet our desires, what we look to to quench our thirst and to satisfy our hunger is ultimately what we're worshiping. It's ultimately what's the God in our lives, right? If you believe that, that each, each of us is hungry, each of us wants something, each of us needs something, and if you fundamentally believe that the hunger of your heart will be satisfied if you get enough money, well, then your whole life is going to be oriented around the pursuit of getting enough money. You'll work too many hours. You'll neglect your relationships. You'll neglect your body. Money will become for you not just a good thing that you want some of. It will become your functional God. It will become that thing that you worship, that you sacrifice other things for. The same goes for, uh, for your reputation. If you think you need the approval of other people in order to be full, in order to be satisfied, then you'll wear yourself out doing what you think other people require of you, right? That the things that we think will satisfy us become what we worship. They become our gods. And so the two feasts are one is an invitation to worship the true God, to worship the God who alone can actually satisfy the deepest hungers of our hearts. And the other is an invitation to attempt to fill up the infinite longings of our heart with the temporary satisfactions uh, that this world has to offer. And so the two feasts are symbols of worship. They're symbols of what we think that we can't live without. And so wisdom calls out. I love this invitation in verse four. Whoever is simple, whoever's foolish, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks any sense... She says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Right, I love this. this. This call to turn, this call to turn in and come in here is an invitation to, to a big biblical word called repentance. Right, repentance is the New Testament word that simply means to turn. You're going in one direction, you're pursuing one set of goals and ambitions and things that you think you need. And the invitation to repent is the invitation to turn your heart away from those things and to come to God, to come back to the God who made you, to the God who loves you. And so the invitation, I love that it's addressed to the simple. It's addressed to the foolish. It's addressed to the one who's already spent far too much time chasing after things that can't satisfy to fill us up. Right? The invitation is always there. It's not that you get a one-time chance to choose between wisdom and folly, righteousness and sin. But that the voice of wisdom is always coming out. There's, an always, there's always an invitation that's out there, and the invitation is to come and turn and come in here. Taste from my table. Taste the food that I've made. Taste the wine that I've poured. I love that this, par this, this proverb shows us that God is so good and God is so gracious that even the call to repentance is the invitation to a party. Right? Even the call to leave behind your sin comes to us as an invitation to a better and richer party. Right? Think of this. I don't think this is the way that many of us think about repentance. When we think about leaving our addictions behind, whether there are addictions to, to alcohol, to drugs, to lust, to greed, to anger, when we think of leaving those things behind, we don't think of that as an invitation to a joyful party. We think of that as an invitation to have to exert our will, right? Listen, if I'm going to quit, I'm going to have to 
I'm going to have to bite my bottom lip. I'm going to have to pull myself up, and I'm going to have to stop it. Right? I'm going to have to stop going to drink. I'm going to have to stop going to drugs. I'm going to have to stop going to pornography. I'm going to have to stop working too many hours going to greed. Right? That it's going to be up to me to stop it. What I've come to realize, both in my own life and in the life of the people that I've pastored and counseled, is I've never known one person who's quit anything that had a significant hold of their heart simply because they decided to stop it. Simply because they decided one day, you know what? I just haven't been trying hard enough. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work harder to get better. No, the, the, the beautiful thing, both about the nature of God and about human nature that the, pro, the author of Proverbs opens up for us here is the only way you'll ever repent, the only way you'll ever change is when you hear the invitation to a better feast than the one you've been eating, right? It's only when you hear the voice of Jesus and you see his love for you on the cross and you understand all that's offered you in union with him that you'll finally say, you know what? Jesus is better. His meal is better. His wine is sweeter. Everything that he offers me in life with him is so much better and richer than the counterfeit promises that I've sought elsewhere, right? The intimacy that he offers is so much sweeter than the intimacy that I've chased after in my lust. The treasure that he offers is so much richer and more lasting than what I've chased after in my greed and my overwork. The acceptance and the delight that he offers me is so much more lasting than the opinions of human beings that I've chased after worrying what other people think of me. Right? It's only when you stop and you realize that Jesus' feast is better, that Jesus offers more, that he's sweeter, that you'll actually be able to turn your heart away from those other things, those lesser things that you've sought after, and find satisfaction in Jesus. Only then. You know, there's a, there's a counselor named Ed Welch wrote a book on addiction that he called, and I think he got his title from this, from this proverb, called it Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Right, that our addictions, those things that we think we can't live without, we go thinking it's gonna offer a banquet, thinking it's gonna offer life and joy and satisfaction. But like the Feast of Folly, it leads us only uh, down to, to the grave. And so, uh, we receive these two invitations, two parties held at the same time, and we can't attend both. Which party are you attending? Which feast are you sitting down at? Which table are you feeding upon? Well, that is the question uh, that's offered at the center of this, of this proverb. Verses 7 through 12 offer us a series of diagnostics to help us understand what table am I eating at? Where am I going for satisfaction? It's like a checkup. If you ever, I, I've got the habit, I go into a, uh, to see my doctor once a year uh, for my annual checkup, right? And he's gonna, he's gonna weigh me, he's gonna check my blood pressure, he's gonna take, uh, do my, uh, my cholesterol, he's gonna do blood work, he's gonna do all of those things. And usually before he does the test, he's gonna ask me a question. He's gonna say, Dave, have you been taking care of yourself? Dave, how have you been eating? And I can say to him, well, Doc, you know, it's been nothing but chicken and fish for me, nothing but vegetables. I've been eating great. I've been exercising six days a week. Things are, things are going well. And then he's going to look at his paper. And he's going to go, well, Dave, 
You've gained 15 pounds. Your blood pressure is off the charts. Uh, your cholesterol's way up. Tell me more about the chicken and vegetables. Uh, you, you do know that, that the Colonel's fried chicken uh, doesn't count as good for you chicken, right? French fries aren't a vegetable. You know, he's going to say, tell me, I know you say you're eating, right? But let's, the, the proof is in this diagnostic, is in this checkup. And that's what uh, the author of Proverbs does for us here. He gives us what I'm going to say are three questions that you can ask yourself to try to search your heart and see what, at what table am I making a habit of sitting down and eating at? The first question is, what is your response to being corrected? What's your response when someone brings some information to you that you don't have about yourself? Do you learn from it? Do you take it on yourself? Do you, are, are you uh, humble enough to receive? Or are you thin-skinned and defensive? When somebody tries to correct you, do you immediately get defensive? Do you immediately tell them you don't need any of their help? We see this here in verses seven through nine. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, but reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning." When we're feeding on Christ, when we're rooted in Christ, we're able to have, we're able to have thick skin because we know that our, our identity, our worth, our value doesn't come from being right all the time or knowing everything, right? We're, we're able to be humble enough to be teachable when our identity is grounded in Christ. But apart from Christ, you can't tell me anything because I have far too much invested in being right and being righteous and being good and knowing what's best for me Right? I, I've got to confess that in and of myself, I have terribly thin skin. I have an incredible propensity uh, to pretend that I don't need help, any help from anybody. Last week, uh, we were up in uh, the, the mountains of Western North Carolina. And when I go to North Carolina, usually there's one day when we're up there that I go off by myself and I go fishing. Fly fishing on the trout streams of North Carolina is my happy place. I just, I love going there. The guide at the fly shop, before I went out this time, gave me a map. And he said, if you've never fished this little area called Panthertown Valley, you need to go out and fish Panthertown. And so he gave me this map with these tiny little trails through hundreds of square miles of really untouched natural forest, national forest. And so I go out there, I'm so excited. I get my fly stuff on and I go out there and I get a little way, I'm in the parking lot and there's a guy down, just down the way from me, we're the only two cars in the lot. He's probably about 65, 70 years old. He, you know, I asked him, hey, have you ever been here before? He says, yeah, I fish these waters all the time. I come out here all the time. I know these trails. He doesn't have a map. I've got a giant map I'm trying to find. And he asked this pivotal question. Son, do you need any help? And something mannish in me came up. And of course I said, no, I don't need any help. Right? I, lo I love being out here. I've got my map. I'll be fine. And so we both skip out of the parking lot. We go a ways, I get a ways ahead of him. He's a little old, so I was moving faster, moving a little, you know, charging down the trail. I'm just loving it. And I get to the first spot where the trails start to branch out. And I look at my map and I look at the trails and there's no names and some of them don't look very well marked at all or not marked. So I'm just standing there scratching my head and he comes, eventually he catches up to me. He says, son, do you, do you need any help? 
And so, you know, about all I could muster in my pride was, you know, I think I've got it, but I'm going to follow you for a little bit. I'll tag along and then, uh, and then I'll branch off and go my own way a little while later. But what is it in us that, that's unable to say, you know what, I'm a flatlander from Florida, right? This stage is about as much elevation as I see on a weekly basis. Um, I'm a city boy to my core. I need help. I'm in over my head, I don't know what I'm doing, and I need somebody with some wisdom to show me the way. But in our pride, we're, we're slow to do that, whether in small things like wandering off into the wilderness. Well, could have been a big thing. <laughs> or big things like the ways that we manage our money, the ways that we spend our time, the ways that we make choices and learn what it means to follow God. How do, we get defensive, we have thin skin, and we're impervious to correction. But when our identity is rooted in Christ, we're easy to correct. We hold our, our pride loosely and say that we need, we need wisdom, we need direction. So what is your response to being corrected? It's a good diagnostic question. Second question, who or what is the object of your utmost love and respect? Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is one of the great thematic refrains of Proverbs. The, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of Israel's God is the beginning of wisdom. That seems strange to us, right? To, to, as much as we talk and as much as we rightly talk and preach about the love, grace, and affection that God has for us, that we would ever talk about fearing God, that we would ever talk about fearing the Lord, and for someone who's in Christ, for someone who knows the grace and goodness and mercy of God in Christ, the fear of God isn't the fear that we have of someone who has it out to harm us. It's not the fear that we have of danger, but it's the awe and the respect and the love that we have of the one who's the largest thing in our life, right? It's the, it, it's the posture before God that says, God, compared to you, everything else in my life is small by comparison. God, I can, if I've got you, if, I've, if I'm living my life in relationship with you, then I can lose my money, I can lose the approval of others, I can lose everything else that I think I need to survive. But if I've got you, I've got everything, that you are what matters to me. Living before your face, living, living in relationship with you, with your favor and your delight, is the thing that matters to me. It's the awe and the respect uh, that we're to hold God in in our lives. One preacher uh, has said that, uh, that the, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then the fear of anything else is the beginning of stupidity. Right, I love that line. Right, if, if, if the fear of the Lord, if having him first and largest in our lives leads us to wisdom in every other area, then when you, when you exalt something else to that point, of being the largest thing in your life. It's the beginning of making a wreck of your life. It's the beginning of starting to make stupid decisions. Right, but when God is the largest thing in our lives, when he is the largest, the one that we love and respect above all others, then the other things in our life start to be right-sized in comparison. We start to want and to, and to recognize that we long for friendship, but to not believe that we have to to people please the people around us in order to make them happy. We come to have goals for what we want to be able to save and to give and to do financially. But we're no longer dominated or ruled by our love of money. The other things in our lives come into right size 
when we have the fear of the Lord. So what is it in your life that you think that you can't dare to lose? Relationships that you think you can't bear to have tension in or to lose? Is it a spouse? Is it your children? Is it a friend? Is it your boss? Are there other people in your life that that hold your heart captive instead of of the true God? I think this is especially a, a temptation and a need for our students. Right, I remember when I was in middle and high school, uh, I thought that if I wasn't uh, in the crowd that I thought I needed to be in, that my life would be absolutely meaningless. Right, if I didn't run with the right people, if I didn't have the right friends, if I didn't have the respect of all the right guys and girls, that my life was going to be hollow and empty. And so I spent far too much of my teenage years chasing after what I thought people needed of me, what I thought people wanted me to be like. So I think it's especially valuable for our students to realize that the fear of the Lord, that the love and affection, the the glory of God, when it's first in our lives, those other things can be right-sized. We don't have to chase after them. So who or what is the object of your love and respect? And the third and final question uh, that this section of the proverb brings us to ask is, are you becoming more fully alive or quietly dying inside? Are you becoming more fully alive? Do you have a sense of an inner life that's growing more and more vibrant and alive? Or do you have a sense that something inside of you is being diminished day after day, year after year? Right, that's ultimately the two destinies that are laid out by these two feasts. Right, the one feast, the feast that wisdom, the feast that God invites us to, the fruit of that feast is an abiding and deep life. It's a life of flourishing and abundance. Yes, there's, there's hard times, there's struggling, there's suffering, there's, there's ongoing habits and addictions, but there's a larger theme that weaves throughout your life that is that you're moving from death to life, from emptiness to fullness. In the feast that, that folly sets or that sin and idolatry sets is one where you're slowly moving your way towards Sheol, towards the grave that even though it may taste sweet for a moment, that inwardly it's going to leach away your life. And so a diagnostic question is, is your inner sense one of going from death to life or from life to death? We're told uh, that life with Jesus is supposed to be a full and abundant life. It's supposed to be a life uh, that's marked by feasting. Right? One commentator says of the Gospels that if you read the Gospels, Jesus seems to always either be at a meal, going to a meal, or leaving a meal. Right? Everything else happens somewhere between Jesus' meals. Uh, he was eating and drinking enough that his detractors called him a glutton and a drunk. Right? And that wasn't just because Jesus liked a good meal, although being fully human, he did you know, enjoy good food over bad food. Right? It's because he was showing us something of what life in the kingdom is like, of something of what life with him is like, is that it's meant to be a feast. Right? Of all of the things that Jesus could have left his church with, to say, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't choose preaching. He didn't choose singing. He chose this table. He chose a meal to be at the center of the church's life because life with him is meant to be a feast a symbol of going to abundance, to joy, to celebration. He came, he says, that we might have life and have it to the full. 
And so life with Jesus should have something of the character of a joyful celebration to it. Now that doesn't mean that you wake up every day and think, mm, I'm just happy to be alive with Jesus today. Right? There's going, to be, there's going to be dark days. There's going to be hard days. These questions are best asked not a day at a time, but over the course of months and years. Right? Is the trajectory of my life one of feasting and joy? But life with Jesus should be marked by abundance and joy. There's a wonderful story uh, by a man named Isaac Dennison, a short story called Babette's Feast. Uh, it tells the story of a woman uh, from France named Babette who, uh, through a series of tragedies, finds herself living as the servant of two uh, sisters in the Netherlands. And these two sisters, uh, whom, she choo- whom she serves, are members of an austere uh, religious community. They dress in plain and uncomfortable clothes. They eat plain and disgusting food, usually some mix of pudding and pickled fish and water. Right? These, these people are, uh, are people that believe that life with God, the life that Jesus wants for them, is one of denying themselves the joys and pleasures of this life. And what the sisters don't know is that in Babette's previous life, before hardship came upon her, she lived in Paris and was one of the most renowned chefs to the rich of Paris. She loved nothing more than to prepare gourmet, delicious French food. And so uh, each week, Babette uh, cast her luck in playing the lottery in the hope that one day she would win the lottery and be able to go uh, out of this austere religious community and go back to her beloved Paris and to resume her former life. Year after year, she plays the lottery uh, to no avail, right? Like most people, she plays the lottery and loses uh, again and again and again. But then one day, a miracle happens and Babette wins the lottery. And out of her gratitude for the way that these people have brought her in and the way they've shown her kindness in their own way, she says, before I go, before I, before I move back to France, I'd like to, I'd like to throw you a party. They're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the founding of this little religious community. And she said, let me, let me show my gratitude by just one time cooking a meal for you, a real meal, a meal like I know how to cook. And at first they say, no, no, no. A meal like that is far too expensive. It's far too uh, enjoyable for us to want anything to do with it. But finally, out of affection for Babette, they relent and they say, okay, throw us a party. Don't make it too big. You know, don't spend too much, but throw us a party. And over time, they start to take notice as the groceries come in. Uh, Things they've never seen before, cages full of geese and quail, crates and crates of the best wine in France, Uh, vegetables and produce from all around the countryside, things they've never dreamed of tasting before. And so they sit down around their wooden table with their little goblets and their their religious garb. And first she brings out the first course. It's turtle soup. And they sit there and and at first they just kind of sip it down. A few just, "Mm," you know, admit, okay, this, this is good. But they're committed to not smiling, to not enjoying it too much. But over the course of the night, as the wine begins to flow, as the, as the good food starts to come out, all of a sudden, one of them reaches out their arm and puts it around the other, shows affection. and says, after all, doesn't, doesn't Jesus say that it's good and pleasant when we dwell together in unity? Shouldn't we have some joy? And so they, they start to loosen up a little bit and have fun. 
The next course comes out and each course kind of builds upon the next. It gets bigger and better. And by the end of the night, they're just marveling at this delicious food that they've tasted. The delicious uh, taste that they've experienced that they've never had before. This incredible wine that they're enjoying. The fellowship, these friendships that they've cultivated over decades together, but they've never really let themselves just throw their heads back and laugh and have fun together. And so the party comes to an end. They all admit that the party has changed them forever. That it's changed their view, not only of one another, but of life with God, life in their community. And so one of the sisters comes to Babette to thank her. She says, oh, Babette, how can we ever thank you and how we will miss you when you return to Paris? And Babette replies to her, I will not be returning to Paris because I have no money. I've spent every last dime of my winnings on this feast. Right? She spent all, every bit of her lottery winnings went into throwing this party so that these stuffy, stale religious people who had a false idea of what life with God was meant to be like could begin to taste something of the feast that Jesus invites us to. Babette is a beautiful picture of Jesus who invites us to a feast, who spent everything that he had in order to invite us to this feast, a feast at which the bread is his broken body and the cup is his shed blood. He left a seed at his father's table, giving his very life, so that we could come to share in the feast of God with him. Two invitations to two very different feasts await you. Which feast will you come to? Will you continue to try to scrape together enough bread and water out there apart from Christ to satisfy you? Or will you turn? Will you come broken and sinful and hungry to the table that Jesus sets the table of his grace, the table of his presence, and there find life and life abundantly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, each one of us knows uh, the hunger pangs that come with living in this fallen world. We know what it is to have desires that go unmet. We know what it is to long for satisfaction. We know the guilt and the shame that comes as we take those hungers to places other than your table. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that at your table we would always be satisfied. We pray that our hearts would come to you, uh, that we would come and that we would eat and that we would drink of your very presence, of your broken body, and of your shed blood. Lord Jesus, help us to be people who recognize that life with you, even in our sin and brokenness, is a life of abundant feasting and joy. Lord Jesus, may you always be the satisfaction of our hunger. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.